it seems to me like the world has become obsessed with something. Uh, in, especially in recent months, it seems like the world has become obsessed with the chance to see one particular person, for the chance to catch a glimpse of the one and the only Taylor Swift. Yeah. Uh, in case you haven't been online or haven't spoken to anyone or watched any TV or been anywhere in the last year, Taylor Swift is coming to Australia and that is big news, uh, but it's even bigger news because she's coming with her Eras tour, performing not just new music, but all of her old music that she's uh, recorded to take hold of the rights to her music, right? And it's this, this great occasion where Taylor Swift fans, uh, Swizzlers, as I like to call them, uh, but Swifties as they are actually known, uh, it's apparently this really big thing and it's going to be absolutely spectacular, right? People that have been to this era's tour in America say it's the best concert they've ever been to and possibly ever will go to. And it's so good that just a movie that they've made of this concert has made over $200 million and has set records for movies of concerts. Taylor Swift fans and parents of Taylor Swift fans have given up hours of their lives uh, and, of course, hundreds of dollars for the chance at getting a ticket to the Eras Tour. Does anyone here have a ticket to the Eras Tour? Interesting. Uh, who tried to get a ticket to the Eras Tour and didn't get one? My commiserations for you. Uh, but you're not alone. Because 4 million Australians logged on to try and get tickets to just seven Taylor Swift concerts. Three in Melbourne and four in Sydney. 4 million Australians. That's a fifth of the population. A fifth of Australia was trying to get tickets. And half a billion bots were also trying to get tickets. Like, we should give Ticketek some kind of award because they had to knock aside half a billion scammers trying to get tickets to these concerts. It's this huge event. So many people just want the chance to see Taylor Swift perform. Uh, and there are, of course, a lot of unlucky people that didn't get tickets. Uh, my wife, Kate, who's one of your leaders who's sitting at the back, uh, she initially tried to get tickets and couldn't. And I know this fact through that occurrence that people were even planning to just camp outside the stadium while the concert was on, not having tickets, but just in the hope that they would be able to hear on the breeze the sweet tones of Taylor Swift's music. They were hoping, like, like people were planning on doing that and it's actually going to happen uh, but thankfully for Kate, she actually has got tickets, uh, and I don't think I've ever seen her react so joyfully uh, than when she got tickets, and we, we got married a couple of years ago, so I have that, I have that reaction to compare. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is because it seems like everyone just wants the chance to be in the presence of Taylor Swift, right? And in today's passage in Exodus, we see God's presence descend into a tent and choose to dwell among his people. And you can actually see that this idea of being in the presence of God is kind of the ultimate aim of the book of Exodus, right? God all along has been seeking to free this group of people from slavery, to lead them through the wilderness to this mountain and at that mountain to give them laws to tell them how to build this big fancy tent so that he can dwell 
among them so that he can actually have a relationship with this people. And if we look all the way back to a part of Exodus we studied right at the beginning of the term, in Exodus chapter 6, it tells us this. When God tells Moses his plan, this is what he said. It's going to be on the screen. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And here he gives the reason, right? I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The end game of what God has been doing for his people was to make them his people. And in order for them to actually be his people, he, of course, needs to be their God. But there are some problems. And there have been problems all throughout the book of Exodus because God is perfect. And this group of people that he's chosen to save are not. And God is the perfect creator God who is also a perfectly just judge. And so he can't be in the presence of evil or sin. God can't be in a relationship with people who actively reject him, with people who worship other gods, with people who make golden cows and choose to bow down to them, right? He can't be their God if they don't actually have him as their God. This is what we were looking at last week, right? that God's people have been chosen by God to be holy, to be set apart as his people, to follow his laws, to follow what he tells them to do. But we also saw last week that they're chosen to be holy, but they in themselves aren't. Last week when we were looking at the Ten Commandments, Tom spoke to us about how you can break these Ten Commandments down into two groups, right? And if you're struggling to remember what the Ten Commandments are all about, They're essentially telling God's people to do two things. Relate to God perfectly and relate to all other people perfectly. And the reality that Tom pointed out to us last week was that that is an impossible task. It's not possible for them to do this. They weren't even really meant to think that it was possible. And what's the natural conclusion when God's people do the wrong thing? Well, what does, what does any parent do when their kid has done the wrong thing? They punish them, right? There's, there's consequences for doing the wrong thing. There has to be a punishment, but there's a, another problem, and that's that God still wants to be in relationship with his people. God actively wants to be in a relationship with this people, but this people are sinful and broken, but he wants to make a way for them to be reconciled, for him to have a relationship. So how is this going to work? Well, the way it works for these people is he creates complex systems for them to try and purify themselves. They have to sacrifice animals. They have to build this big fancy tent. They can only go near the tent on certain times of the year or certain days of the month, and they can only set the tent up at certain times of the month, and only certain people can go into certain parts of the tent. And that's what we read in those first kind of seven verses from chapter 40, was how complex just even setting up this tent can be. But that's what God does. He sets up this tent so they can have a relationship with God. 
so that even if they can only see him from outside of a tent, right, even if they can only stand outside the stadium and hear Taylor Swift on the breeze, even if they can only do that, it's at least something, right? They can at least experience God from the outside of this tent looking in. They still get something. The Israelites, this people, if you didn't get it from what I said just then, are kind of like those Taylor Swift fans planning to hang outside the stadium, right? They so want to have a relationship with God that they're willing to just stand outside the stadium for the sake of having anything to do with Him. But the reality that we know is that attending the concert would be way better, right? How much better would it be to be standing right in the front row looking up at Taylor Swift than standing out in the car park, right? That would be way better. How much better than that even to be able to call Taylor Swift a friend? Now, that would, that would, be, pretty, that would be pretty insane. That would be pretty unimaginable. But that's not attainable for the Israelites and God. They can't have a deeply personal relationship with God because they're not perfect. They aren't good enough. They can only look from the outside in. And this is how it was for God's people for a really, really long time. If we look beyond the book of Exodus, right, we've reached the end of the Exodus story, but it comes to us as part of the entire Old Testament, right? This is how the book finishes, but the story goes on. This is not the end. This partial relationship that these people can have with God is not the end game. It's a temporary solution. It's a band-aid slapped on a gaping wound, right? These people with this tent are going to wander around in a desert for 40 years because they don't trust God enough to let him lead them to a safe place to stay and settle And then a man named Joshua is going to lead them on a conquest of a land called Canaan, where they're eventually going to settle, but they will still live as scattered people, doing whatever they want, not following God properly, until eventually they get uh, judges over them that help for a little bit, and then they get kings over them, which helps for a little bit, and under the reign of two of those kings in particular, who you may have heard of, King David and King Solomon, this tent is going to change forms. This tent becomes the temple. But even with moving from fabric walls and wooden poles to stone, it's still a complicated solution. This temple gets built in Jerusalem, and God's people go there for thousands of years to experience God. But still, only a select few could even enter the innermost parts and truly experience God. And even then, it was only on certain times of the year after they'd done all of these rituals, sacrificed animals, and made sure they abstained from sin and all of this other crazy stuff. And you know what that central place in the temple, that very special spot was called? The Holy of Holies, which essentially is the most set-apart place of set-apart places. It's like, calling the, it's, it's like having a really special spot and calling it the most special spot amongst other special spots, right? The holy of holies. And this was the system. If you're confused, I get it. Me too. It was complex. It was clunky. It was messy. It's like trying to get Taylor Swift tickets on Ticketek. But it was something, right? It was a way of experiencing God. 
And this was the case until about 2,000 years ago when a man named Jesus died on a cross. And he rose from the dead and defeated death. But even before he rose, something happened. Something happened at the time of Jesus' death. That holy of holies that I was talking about, that really special spot in the temple which marked where God was most concentrated amongst his people, where no one could really go, that was separated from the rest of the temple by a big curtain. By a, when I say a big curtain, I mean like a big curtain. Like this thing was thick, like, like actually thick, like a giant curtain that people were not allowed to go past. In the Old Testament, some people try to go past this curtain and they just die, right? Like it's not even that you're not allowed to, it's that you actually cannot go into that part of the temple or else you die. It, was, it represented an impassable barrier between God's people and God. A symbol of everything that separated them from having a personal relationship with their Creator. From God actually being able to dwell among them with them as His people and Him as their God. Read with me what happened. It's going to be up on the screen. It's in Matthew chapter 27, if you guys want to open to it. Uh, looking at verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Ooh, quick aside, by the way, this is where Jesus dies in the Bible. Verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And skipping to verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is in the Bible. It's in Mark's account of the gospel, and it's in Luke's account of the gospel, and it's in, it's in Matthew's account of the gospel that we just read. There's something significant about a curtain tearing in two. In the story of Jesus' death. And the reason this is significant is because it's this symbol of separation from God. Suddenly with Jesus' death, the barrier separating God from his people was torn in two. Completely torn from top to bottom, right? If you think about it, a human would naturally have to tear that from bottom to top. Because they'd be standing, it's a huge, really tall curtain they'd be standing at the bottom but the curtain tore from top to bottom symbolizing that God himself has made a way for his people to be in relationship with him and unlike all of the symbolic sacrifices and the clunky system that the Israelites in Exodus had to go through to be able to get a glimpse of God to be able to look at him from the outside looking in Jesus death was a sacrifice that actually worked By dying on a cross, Jesus took on sin. It was the ultimate act of purification for all people, not just God's people. And so now, the the great joy that you and I can experience is that through Jesus, God's people can experience God. It's almost like through Jesus, we can get tickets to the concert. We can actually be inside the stadium. In fact, we can be friends with the person performing. We can be friends with that awesome person who we might want to be in the presence of. Not from the outside looking in, 
not with a complex series of rituals and cleansing and sacrifices, but rather through Jesus' death, through his atoning sacrifice for sins, believers can have a personal relationship with God. Have you guys ever thought about that? That we can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. It took him a lot of effort to achieve, right? Like he had to give up his only son. He had to let his son whom he loves bear the weight of all the bad things that we've done, of all the ways that we've rejected him. But he was willing to do it because he wanted a relationship with the world. John talks about this in 1 John chapter 4. When writing to Christians, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now that's a little complex, but what does it mean? Well, for God's people in Exodus, they couldn't approach God. In fact, if they went too far into that tent, they died. They couldn't have a personal relationship with Him. They were standing on the outside of the stadium, unable to attend the concert. But Christians today through Jesus' death on the cross, making it possible for us to have a relationship with God, we can have a personal, deep relationship with the God of the universe. And in fact, what we read in the New Testament is that God actually lives in us, dwells within us. We talk about this idea of God being three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we read in the book of Acts that the Spirit dwells within those who believe in Jesus. That part of God now lives inside God's people. And this allows us to do things like pray to Him. We can talk to God. We can actually have a conversation with God and we read in the Bible that He hears us when we talk to Him. Have you ever thought about how amazing that is? Like we pray at the start of youth group like it's nothing. We pray at the end of youth group and in our response groups and we say grace before dinner like it's just some casual thing. But we can only do that because Jesus made it possible. Because He died on a cross to repair the relationship between us and God that was broken by our sin. So I don't have some big, like, application for you guys, other than just sitting in that joy, sitting in how awesome that is, right? Like, we need to take advantage of that opportunity, right? Like, if someone was going to give you free Eras Tour tickets and, like, let you go to Taylor Swift's concert, like, it would be absolutely wild of you not to go. Right? How much better, like, no offense to Taylor Swift, but how much better than her is the God of the universe? And He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to talk to Him. He wants you to know who He is. He wants to speak into your life. He wants to shape you to be the best version of you that you can possibly be, right? So, take advantage of it. And you might be thinking, how do I do that? Like, how do, how do I have a personal relationship 
with God? Well, it's quite simple, really. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 tells us how to be saved by Jesus. It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. You have to honestly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. And if you're there, go for it. Like, do it. Pray to God. Say, God, I believe that Jesus is the Lord of my life and that he, like, I want him to be Lord of my life. Help him to live in me and turn my mic off and be that for me. And Lord, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If that's you, awesome. Pray that prayer, ask for forgiveness, and you're saved. That's, it's literally that simple. God offers a relationship with you for free. We just need to accept him. And perhaps you're not there yet, right? Perhaps you're not sure whether Jesus rose from the dead. In which case, keep finding out. Like, Figure out whether or not you're sure. Look at the evidence. I believe it. I've looked at the evidence. You can take my word for it if you like, but I'd recommend you do some research yourself. Ask your response group leaders. Ask people you trust. Figure out the truth. It's there for you in the Bible. God has reached down into our world and made himself known. Look at it for yourself. That's the big call from tonight. Take advantage of the relationship that God wants to have with you. A deep and personal relationship with the God of the universe. I'm going to pray uh, that we would seek that, that we would take advantage of that, and then we're going to get into our response groups and we're going to talk about it a bit more. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that through your son Jesus, you did away with the complex rituals, with the sacrifices, with the temples and the tents, uh, and we can now, rather than standing on the outside, trying to catch a glimpse of who you are and what it would be like to have a relationship with you, Thank you that through your son, Jesus, we can have a relationship with you, that we can speak to you through prayer, that we can let you speak into our lives through your word in the Bible, and that we can learn about you together as your people, and you can guide us through your spirit living within us. Dear Lord, please help us to take advantage of this relationship, to want to let you into our lives and into our choices, our decisions, our habits, our friendships our relationships. Dear Lord, please help this relationship between us and you to be the one defining relationship in our lives that shapes all others. Dear Lord, if we're still looking for answers, please open our eyes to see the truth. Uh, give us the motivation to continue searching and to keep finding the answers that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.